Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, hello and welcome to you all. I'm Bill Glaskell from the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. I'm here today with our regular co-host, Susan Wachter, from the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Hello, Susan. Hello there, Bill. Welcome. And by the way, catch Susan's latest article in Barron's on rising interest rates in the housing market. And while you're at it, uh, look for Dick Ravitch's and my op-ed in the New York Daily News on fiscal cliffs facing New York City. And those are just two sides of the complex issue that our panel of experts will be drilling down into in this special briefing episode on inflation, interest rates, recession, baby stagflation, and what this all means for America's states and cities. With us today are a terrific panel, Mark Sandy from Moody's Analytics, Beth Ann Bovino from S&P Global Ratings, Allison Primo Black from the American Road and Transportation Builders Association, Gabe Pettick, the California Legislative Analyst, and from Wayne County, Michigan, Chief Financial Officer Huey Newsom, who just before we went live told us he, he got a $1.8 billion budget approved. So congratulations, and we'll, we'll cycle back to that in a minute. A couple of housekeeping details for you before we get down to work, and I do mean work. Audience members are muted, but many of you have sent in great questions, and we've left lots of time for Q&A. We're coming to you on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites, where you can also find archived editions of this and every other special briefing episode. And starting in late September, you'll also be able to subscribe to the special briefing podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or your favorite platform. And of course, thanks to the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation for your generous support. And with that, let me turn the mic over to Susan Walker, who's uniquely equipped to deal with today's big story from her perch as professor of real estate and finance at the Wharton School, as well as her role at Penn IUR. So, Susan, give us your your 10,000 foot or 3,000 meter view. Thank you, Bill. Well, the big news, of course, is that today's special briefing comes after Tuesday's announcement and release of a 0.1% consumer price index increase when a 0.1% decrease was expected. And stripping out volatile food and energy, this translates to a 6.3% annualized inflation rate, a rise from the 5.9% of July, and an increase when it was hoped that inflation was coming under control and there would be a decrease. As a result, It's now anticipated we have baked into markets a 0.75 percentage point federal funds rate increase, and even the possibility in September, uh, later weeks from now, a 1% rise later this uh, coming up. So this, of course, puts into major question, into the crosshairs, the soft landing that was hoped for. Is a hard landing now inevitable? We have a great panel here with us today. And to start us off to discuss this, Beth Ann, how does this news affect your forecast for the economy and inflation? 
Well, it didn't surprise me too much. I didn't think we actually reached the peak in terms of inflation readings. So in that sense, it, you know, it was as expected from my take. That said, it does mean that uh, the Fed will continue to be as aggressive as they plan to. They've already indicated they're going to front load a lot of the uh, rate hikes that they planned, which was a bit more surprising for me. I thought they would reach peak by mid-2023. It now looks like they're planning to push everything forward into 2022. We already had a, tw- a 75 basis point hike for September. Uh, now I would say the risk is very low. The risk has increased sharply that it could be 100. Uh, what does that mean for the economy? Well, we already have uh, we already have a, a low growth recession in our forecast, but we do have a recession, meaning according to the National Bureau of Economic Research criteria, the risk of that is now 50-50. I would also add that one of the things that's really hard when we hear these numbers of very, very high inflation is the squeeze on affordability. We're already seeing it with low-income households. But it's already, but it's climbing up the income bracket, and that's just a concern going forward. Well, thank you, Beth Ann, for that uh, short introduction. And I think we have Mark Zandi on. Mark, I saw you uh, quoted in yesterday's New York Times at, uh, indicating this was a, somewhat of a surprise to you. Tell me what your thinking is. I was disappointed and disconcerted by the CPI number. I mean, it shows that inflation is broad based and it feels more entrenched than I would have thought prior to the report. I think the two things that made me most nervous was the uh, continued acceleration in rent growth. I mean, that's not a surprise given the shortage of available housing and market rents, but it was stronger than I had expected. And it feels like uh, that may be more of an issue for longer than I had expected. But the thing that also has come on the radar screen that became evident in the report was medical care inflation, you know, medical care services. And that's actually more important for the consumer expenditure deflator. As you know, the CPI is heavier on housing. The PCE is heavier on medical care, just based on construction. And medical care inflation was up quite a bit. And that goes that goes back right to the labor market, the job market, because it's a very labor-intensive industry and wages are rising very rapidly. And if you look at unfilled positions in the healthcare sector, they're extraordinarily high and keep rising. And obviously the pandemic has just created havoc in that sector. So that's just an added concern because that it feels like that's going to be more persistent as well. So, you know, my sense is that we're going to, it's going to be relatively straightforward to go, if anything is straightforward in this period that we're in, go from 8% plus CPI inflation to 4% inflation. That's the energy price effects, the food price, the uh, supply chain issues, the vehicle prices. That's all going to come out of the inflation numbers in the next uh, six, nine months. But getting from four down to two and a half, which I think is the Fed's target uh, for the CPI, top end of the target, that's going to be more difficult. And, you know, I think they'll be able to do that with rate increases up to four, four and a half percent on the funds rate target. As you know, they're at two and a half. They're going to raise rates in, in a week or so, get it up to th- closer to three and a half. And then I think they get it, they raise rates further to get it to four to four and a half. And that'll be a sufficient to cause them to pause, take a look around, see if their rate increases are working to slow growth, wage growth, and getting inflation back down to their target. And I think, you know, that is still the most likely scenario, but I say that with much less confidence today than I did 
after that CPI report, it feels like inflation could be much more, again, broad-based and, and entrenched than anticipated. And if it, if it is, then the Fed's going to have to start resuming rate increases again. And if that happens, then we're going into recession. So Beth Ann, I think I heard her say even odds. I'd say, you know, I wouldn't argue with her. That feels about right to me. And before the CPI report, I would have said better than even odds. We make our way through without recession. Now, now I just can't say that. It's it's going to be very, very tricky. And a recession in the second half of 23, when would it hit? I don't think there's any chance of recession in the near term. The labor market is just way too strong. We're just creating way too many jobs. There's too many unfilled positions. Consumers have a lot of cash other than the folks in the bottom part of the income distribution. They have a lot of cash sitting in their checking accounts. You can see that in today's retail sales numbers they're going to spend. So I don't see recession next six months, next nine months, but you know, by the latter part of 23 going into 24. And that's what the yield curve is saying too. So if you look at the yield curve, shape of the yield curve, difference between long rates and short rates, 10-year, two-year, uh, that has inverted, meaning two-year yields have risen about 10-year yields. Historic, that's a very prescient, long-leading indicator of recession. That would suggest a recession 12, 18 months from now. Let's take the midpoint of that. So you know that would be end of 23 going into 24 when we have a recession. The New York Fed's yield curve recession probability projector or, or predictor has about a 25% chance in the next 12 months. But I, I think you and Beth Ann are closer to reality and the, and the, the Fed's index is trailing, uh, is trailing things a bit. Oh, that's interesting. I'd like to look. I haven't looked at that. I'll have to take a look, Bill. Um, What's interesting in your more negative and your surprise is the entrenched medical care in the labor market and how unusual the circumstance is to have such a rel- or relatively tight labor market. We'll talk about this more in the Q&A, but the tight labor market also has implication for housing, and very rarely do housing prices slow down without ease in the labor market and significant increase in unemployment. So both are going great guns, and I guess that's behind your story, Mark, of why we're going to need a, a recession to quell inflation. Yeah, well, Susan, I, I'm not again. I'm about even odds, so I'm not ready to throw in the towel on recession. I think you know there is a kind of the, the narrative or the, the thought is that the very strong wage growth we're saying, we're saying is related to the very high energy, oil, food prices that we've been suffering through. It's kind of a one-time adjustment to wages to account for that uh, that bump in living costs. Of course, now energy prices are back in, gas prices have fallen, food prices should start to come in here as well as diesel prices you know, start to moderate because a big part of the food inflation is the cost of getting the food from the farm to the store shelf. And as that happens, you know, you, that premium in wage comes out and you get back to wage growth that's more consistent with the Fed's target. That narrative, that view is still, I still think, you know, reasonable probability of that happening. But again, I, I say that with much less confidence today than I did before the CPI numbers. So in these uncertain times, let's turn to the implications for state and local. Bill, you want to introduce our next panel? Yeah, I, I will introduce Allison in a second, but let, let me give you two examples. Mark talked about healthcare inflation. New Jersey just cut a deal to cover next year's health insurance payments for state and local workers. For the state part of that plan, the rate for insurance was going to go up over 20%. The state is going to eat most of that 
to keep basically keep the unions happy and make the workers whole or almost whole, that'll give you an idea of some of the pressures on the state budget because this is going to come out of, of all the surpluses that New Jersey has New Jersey has has run up it's way beyond forecast. Alex Adams, the um, the Idaho budget director, told us a couple months ago, I can't build that bridge for what I've budgeted. I think he said it was a $200 million bridge. Ain't no way that's going to that's going to happen with inflation. So Allison, you know, you're right at the heart of this. How is how is inflation, supply shortages, how is this affecting states and localities, especially with all of this money flowing in from the American Rescue Plan and the infrastructure bill, and now probably more money coming in from the Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah, there's no question that in terms of infrastructure investment, uh, there are a couple things that the industry has been dealing with in terms of those construction projects. There's no doubt the increase in prices uh, is definitely impacting as well as material availability. That's having an impact on bid prices and how far some of these dollars are going to stretch with the increased investment. And just to remind folks, the Infrastructure Investment Act, uh, the infrastructure bill we're talking about is providing over $850 billion in additional federal investment uh, for everything from energy, broadband to more traditional things like highways, bridges, rail, airports. So that money is being provided to states and particularly on the transportation side. Uh, you know, there is also a question about how much this is contributing to the increase in demand for some of these goods and commodities. And the way this works through the system is states are committing these dollars towards projects right now. And we're seeing that happen just as we would expect for highways and bridges and transit airports, those projects then go out to bid and the money is spent out over time. So just for highways and bridges alone, the increase in additional investment from the federal side is only generating about $4 billion in additional construction activity this year. So, and that's an estimate from the Congressional Budget Office. So while over the long term, this is definitely contributing to the demand for materials and goods and services, it's not buying up as much right now as you might think, given some of the big numbers that when we talk about the bill in general. But, you know, we're facing issues with labor. We're adding a number of jobs in heavy construction in the industry, but wages are up. Those employees are working more hours. And we also know in construction, there's very low unemployment right now and a lot of job openings. So there is pressure there, like we're seeing with the broader economy. And then again, those material prices, that's something that's a concern that we're keeping a close eye on right now. The increases that we're seeing in terms of costs and bids in those awards, we don't think are wiping out the increase in market activity from that additional federal, state, and local investment, but that could change as we go on. But hopefully over time, if we see some easing in the prices and commodities, that's going to mean as these materials are actually being purchased and used to deliver these projects, that hopefully over the longer term, some of that has eased. But you know, longer term state revenues big issue with matching the federal investment. You know, if people really start to drive less, purchase less vehicles, that's going to impact some of those transportation related revenues. So that's something that, you know, we're concerned about longer term, but, but hopefully these are investments that also we know increase productivity in the long term as these improvements are being made, hopefully will help ease some of these longer term issues. 
Just a quick question before we deal with it in the Q&A, but just, just to follow up quickly, the Association of General Contractors had a survey out recently that basically said every job classification in every state they surveyed, white collar, engineering, planning, finance, and and all the trades jobs, there, there isn't a category that they that is not in short supply. Have things gotten worse, or is is this been a, a chronic problem since uh, since well before COVID? Yeah, what I always point to is that we have seen states increase uh, transportation investment, and we've seen that market grow significantly over the last decade, and jobs have been added. Now, wages have increased faster than the private sector in general at a higher rate, so we've seen those market dynamics work. And I think we're continuing to see that this year. A number of jobs have been added. We're just about at that pre-COVID employment level, but again, wages have increased you know, within six to seven percent just this year alone to attract that additional labor. So I think it's been an issue that we have seen for longer than just the near term, but certainly the broader economic situation, I think, is exasperating and contributing to some of that with the overall low unemployment. Thanks. My kids should have gone into civil engineering, I think. Let's continue on this this theme and turn to Gabe Pettick. And both Gabe and I and Beth Ann, all, all three of us are either current or S&P alumni. So this, this is kind of a, a family reunion. So Gabe, tell us how, how is the, the interest rate inflation recession story playing out in California? The state's got huge surpluses, also has a huge unemployment insurance fund loan to pay off. And I know that California is terrific on your office is terrific on running various semi simulations. So, you know, give us an idea of the, mm-hmm. the likely path and what happens in your more outlier paths. Okay, sure. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for inviting me to participate today. And as Bill said, our office, the Legislative Analyst Office, provides nonpartisan fiscal and policy advice to the California State Legislature. So I'll uh, go ahead and give you the perspective from California. Beginning back in May, our office began to incorporate a view of an elevated risk of recession into our outlook. And I would say at that point, more than anything that was existing in the current economic situation, our outlook was based on the coalescing of various economic factors and financial market indicators. There were four in particular. First, the simultaneously high inflation and very low unemployment. Second was the uh, signs of a slowing uh, housing market where we saw slowdown in uh, home sales, likely due to the rising uh, mortgage rates. Third, we noted falling consumer confidence which was typical of um, you know, past downturns. And then finally, as you uh, referenced, the inversion of the yield curve was something that we uh, particular note of. And in our research, what we, know, what we found was that over the last 50 years, five out of the six times these various factors had uh, combined to occur at around the same time, there was a recession within uh, the next two years. So essentially our judgment was that historically speaking, it's been difficult for the Fed to navigate a soft landing when you have such a such a situation. And this view began to, we incorporated this view into our revenue forecast, which basically took a weighed on the revenue trends from the most recent years. And the last uh, two years in 2020-21, we saw state tax revenues grow by 30%, you know, historically the strongest revenue growth in at least 40 years. And then uh, this past year, which just ended, 
they grew another 20%. And so what our forecast did is really show that that was going to change. We were calling for pretty flat revenue growth over the next uh, you know, several years. As it turns out, from a fiscal standpoint, we did begin to see some evidence of this. And so in the final two months of the fiscal year that ended in June, tax collections for California were off the budget assumption by $2.2 billion, which um, is a large number, but in California's context is uh, less than 1% of our annual tax revenues. So they were off a little bit at the end of the year. And then as we went into the new fiscal year, revenues have continued to be a bit soft. Coming in July, coming in about 1.3 billion below what the budget, the newly enacted budget assumed. And so now, as we look ahead from here, our office has uh, updated our revenue forecast, not a full-blown forecast, but we take some indicators and kind of take a snapshot of what we see now. We estimate that it, there's a 70% likelihood that tax revenues will be below the Budget Act in the current fiscal year. The hard part, of course, is trying to identify, well, how much below, and the range is quite wide, and it goes from, uh, well, the best guess, the median kind of guess for us is that there'll be about $6 billion below the budget assumption, but it could be anywhere from $18 billion below to $7 billion higher. So that's kind of the range, and we think at the midpoint about, you know, we're saying about $6 billion below. But as you said, Bill, we come into it with somewhat of a fiscal tailwind. We've built up large reserves. We have $28 billion in our discretionary reserves. That represents about 12% of expenditures. And in the last couple of years, the legislature and the governor have been quite prudent about how they allocate the surpluses that you mentioned. We, uh, as we finalized the budget this year, we had an estimated $53 billion discretionary surplus. Of that, the legislature and governor agreed to only about $2.3 billion in um, ongoing commitments. So most of this was allocated to one time, which we think you know is helpful in two ways. It constrains the growth of our spending base for one thing as we go forward. And then secondly, it leaves resources available that we can apply to paying down debts and putting into reserves. So I'll stop there and look forward to the discussion. Well, thanks very much, Gabe. And uh, this is a reminder that you're with us at special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. It's live on both of our websites and coming to you soon on your favorite podcasting platform. And let's see how the, the cross curves of inflation and higher rates, the stuff that, that Gabe and our other panelists have been talking about, how is this playing out at, at the local level? Huey Newsom, you, you just got a, a new $1.8 billion budget approved. How is inflation affecting you? And how are you factoring in recession risk in your planning for the next couple of years? Thank you very much, Bill. Well, and thank you for the congratulations. We were stressed there for a little bit. But I have to say that you know the timing is perfect because the conversation that we continue to have with our commission, with our county commission during the budget hearings and review process, really centered around this idea around making sure that we have affordable, realistic, competitive wages. And just a little bit of context for your listeners, the county, the city of Detroit went into bankruptcy in 2013. Wayne County is the county in which the city of Detroit is, is situated. So we saw some of the same macroeconomic challenges that the city saw, obviously. We are heavily dependent on property taxes. And like a lot of states, the state of Michigan is one 
which protects tax pay, property taxpayers when you have an appreciation of taxable value. And there are certain laws we have what we call head, there's a Headley and Prop A, which for just to um, skip to the punchline, basically what those two things work together to do is limit how much money we can collect in an inflationary environment. So costs continue to go up for the county. However, we can't necessarily capture the entire growth or appreciation in, that, in those taxable values that set those property tax rates, that set those property tax levies. So that was a challenge as we went into as we went into uh, calendar year 2022. Now, again, we saw the dip as we saw the growth post COVID. We really did not we're not able to see the growth in our property tax revenues. Addition to that. We also had the challenge of we are still operating with a skeleton crew from those days back in 2013, 2014. We were on the brink of receivership and state takeover and worked out a consent agreement with the governor's office back in 2015. And so we're still recovering from a standpoint of headcount. And so right now we're running at a 30 percent vacancy rate. We're coming into you know, inflation of eight, nine percent with that context. So now we're we're in double trouble because we see the recession coming and we've been able to kind of store some nuts away from the winter, but that was somewhat somewhat on purpose but also somewhat on accident and unintended because of the massive vacancy savings we have when you're looking at 25-30% vacancy rates. Now, the good news for the county is you know, we just recently received a two-notch upgrade from Fitch. We're at a flat with Fitch, and we're um, with Moody's. We're at a one, and so we're happy. We, you know, the feedback we got from, from the rating agencies during the surveillance season was really around. We see the economic growth. We see the decoupling, if you will, of our economic situation with the automotive industry. We're not just a one-trick pony, so to speak, but at the same time. You know, the challenges that they see, they still see economic challenges in this region. But really for us as a county, it really is about being competitive in the market with our municipal competition, I'll say, but also with the private sector. And we're right now we're kind of at the end of the, we're kind of at the end of the road when everybody else is further ahead. We're becoming more competitive because of our challenges with revenue. So as we go into the recession, I think we feel, and we, the rating agencies clearly feel, that we're in, in a good enough shape. But the problem is our job isn't, you know, we're not here. We're here to remain fiscally solvent, but we're not here to collect fund balances. We're here to provide services to the citizens and taxpayers of Wayne County. And that becomes more of a challenge when you start looking at this 30% vacancy rate. Now, I know Allison was talking earlier about infrastructure. The one good thing, if you will, for us as a county, good or bad, it depends on your perspective. We sold quite a bit of our infrastructure, not all of it, but quite a bit of our infrastructure in the run-up to that consent agreement with the state that I described earlier. The good and the bad is we're still heavily dependent on people. We spend a lot of money on people, either through contractual services or uh, direct salaries. And with that being where we are, you know, we did not see the immediate impact of the eight, nine percent inflation. But now we're seeing the aftermath of it because even though we're not buying, we don't necessarily buy those those goods, capital goods at the same proportion. Now we're having to pay the people that are going to the grocery store and have to, you know, can't buy the steak, have to buy the chicken, can't buy the chicken, have to buy the ramen. That's the challenge that we're dealing with right now. So it's a bit of a it's a bit delayed. 
but it's still, it's starting to really hit us now. Well, thanks, Huey. Susan, I think we've reached that moment when, when we get to Q&A. I know you got a bunch of cues. Our audience also sent in some terrific questions. So Susan, why don't you, uh, why don't you take it and, and start us off? Yes. Well, uh, first question, how is this different from the 1970s, 80s inflation run up? And particularly, the Fed did appear to be somewhat backfooted this time around. And of course, in the 70s and 80s, was extremely erratic and supported the double digit inflation that persisted and led to a severe recession in the early 80s. Mark, do you want to start us off in commenting on the Fed's role then and now? There's a lot of differences between now and then. The biggest difference is the, the Fed. The Federal Reserve, obviously, in the current environment, is not going to countenance the high inflation and is working really hard to keep inflation expectations down and ultimately will raise rates, push the economy into recession before this inflation does become entrenched, before it becomes broad-based. So there, we're, we're going back to target inflation here uh, one way or the other very soon over the next uh, 6, 12, 18 months. That's not what the Fed did back in the 70s before Paul Volcker obviously became chair of the Fed. They were confused by how they should respond to the supply shocks of that time, the oil price shocks that caused growth to slow, inflation to accelerate and did not prioritize bringing inflation back down. And they accommodated, so-called accommodated the inflation for too long. And inflation expectations became undone, wage price spiral developed, and you know, inflation became very high, very entrenched. And ultimately, it took a great deal of courage from Paul Volcker in the, in the very earlier 80s, drive the economy into a very deep, long recession to drive out, drive back those inflation expectations back down and drive out the inflation. So the policy response today, very, very different from the policy response that to back in the 70s, 80s, we're not going down the same path. And, you know, you can hear that, feel it every time current Fed Chair Powell speaks, he's channeling Paul Volcker in any way he possibly can, evokes his name regularly because he knows that it would be a very grave error to not get this inflation down very rapidly. So very, very big difference. Lots of other differences in the labor market, contracting, COLAs, structural economic differences. But the biggest difference in my mind is just the way that the Fed views the world and the way they're going to conduct monetary policy. No, we, uh, actually, Chairman Powell made those comments right here on special briefing. Beth Ann, do you uh, expect that the Fed will hold to these views, even in the possibility of a recession, even if and when unemployment uh, starts rising? Well, uh, sure of it, yes, they will continue. Their their mandate is, and the Fed has said this, they're probably the most unliked people in, you know, at least in the United States at this point in time, because they're very much focused on the long-term uh, stability of inflation, which ultimately means stability in the jobs market. They have to rebalance the demand and supply disruptions that we're experiencing right now, not just in goods, but also in labor as well. They can't make oil. They can't make autos. So all they can do is rank, rank up uh, interest rates, hike up or tighten monetary policy until demand responds. And that means a lot of pain. One thing that um, I was thinking of when Mark was talking was that also the uh, this new this Fed, 
gets the, um, I guess, the gift of knowing what happened in the 70s and knowing what Volcker does, did. Uh, I think they're actually taking many pages from Volcker right now. I think they're pretty much, you know, standing by the helm. They're going to keep going, you know, full, full throttle down the torpedoes, I guess you would say. And indeed, if that means a recession, well, so be it. But I think in the long run, what if they go, don't go too fast? What if they raise hikes, but it's not large enough? It's, they're still behind the curve. Where will we be in 2023 and 2024? We'll have a much stronger inflation, a Fed that still has to raise rates even higher, probably even to the point where Volcker gets, into, gets a mention. And so that's what they're trying to avoid. Somewhat surprisingly, and, and I'm going to hand it back to you, Bill, perhaps to refine this question for Allison and Gabriel and Huey. Somewhat surprisingly, wages, we talk about the wage price spiral, but wages are lagging prices right now. And yet we just heard from our distinguished panelists of difficulty of getting skilled labor, getting workers. And so how do these competing trends play out? Bill, do you want to add to the question, make it more precise? And that's, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's a terrific question. You can see it in the proposed railway labor agreement that the White House and the industry just hammered out, hasn't been voted on yet, but I think it was um, 24% wage increase over, correct me if I'm wrong, five five years. It's in real terms. In real terms, it's not a wage. It's not a wage hike at, at all. You know, th- this is a big issue. Number one for workers who have colas in their union contracts, but for union contracts that are up for negotiation, like in New York City, it's hard to see how people are going to stay even with inflation or get ahead of inflation. I'll leave that as a leave that as a jump ball here for anybody to uh, anybody to, to grab. I've been following this pretty closely. And one of the things, you know, so the question of is it a wage spiral? Well, I guess both technical terms, maybe not. But what you just described, Bill, sounds pretty, pretty spiraling away um, uh, dramatically. So it is uh, obviously something front and center. When you talked about uh, wages, yes, um, what I've been saying is that wages uh, in nominal terms have been going through the roof, taxing businesses. But in real terms, as you mentioned, they're in negative territory. They've been in negative territory for 17 straight months. And that means that's the question of affordability that I mentioned earlier, why uh, workers are, are so frustrated. When you take the affordability story, in terms of lower income households, they've been squeezed dramatically. You can already see a changing in their spending habits. On the higher income households, you're starting to see that climb up the, up the, up the chain as well. And Susan, I mean, this is your area, but one of the things that we're noting is that housing affordability is incredibly tight. We actually, in our analysis that we did, we saw that for first-time um, first-time home buyers, you're looking at about now about 60% of households, U.S. households, are now can't afford those monthly yes, payments. Beth, Andrew, you're exactly right. We're at a 30-year low in affordability, but nonetheless, housing prices continue to rise at double-digit rates in our most recent information. However, even though rents are still rising at 6% and annualized 10%, we do see a slight decline in uh, housing prices. But nonetheless, as we say, rents, which are continuing to rise, and the rental equivalents are between 30 40%, depending on how you mentioned it, of the CPI, which means that any decline in the CPI is going to be delayed because rents are contractually determined. We'll come back perhaps to those questions, but I'm anxious to get to Allison. What do you see this, these conflicting trends mean going forward? You were talking about infrastructure before. Is it going to slow up infrastructure spending? How's it going to work out? No, I think infrastructure is going to continue to grow. 
There's no question with the additional money from the federal investment, we are not seeing evidence so far that state and local governments are substituting away as in pulling back on what they would normally be spending on infrastructure. We've been looking at state budgets. So that is a positive sign. So we think that's going to continue. I think on the labor issue, what we will see is increases in productivity in general in the construction sector, and particularly transportation construction spending, where we do see adoption of new technologies and techniques that are going to help with some of those labor challenges that we were talking about earlier. But given the amount of federal investment through the IIJA, particularly for highways, bridges, transit, airports, and rail, we don't see right now that sector declining. And even with some of the challenges we were talking about, we're still expecting real growth over the next year or two as that work gets underway. And Allison, the timing of that, might that help any possibility of recession in 2023? Do you see it ramping up the infrastructure spending in 2023? Yes. So the way that uh, work on these projects happens, as I mentioned, with even with the increases we're talking about in the amount of money being committed to projects, it's only about $4 billion for highways and bridges in additional spending this year. But yes, that is going to ramp up over the next five years as new projects get underway and work continues. But because of the spend out of those construction dollars for infrastructure projects, it really is going to be over the next five years that we see that ramp up in actual activity and spending on some of those materials that we're talking about. So I think that gives us a little bit of room over the next few years that hopefully if things things get sorted out on the, the price front, that's going to help when the construction activity is at its highest level. Alison, can we put some numbers, maybe even qualitatively, around this? Are we, you know, when is when do we get to steady state infrastructure next year? By year four and five, you've got that's where we're at our peak because the spending it's front loaded in terms of the availability of those dollars that states can commit towards those projects. But you got to go through the bidding and the the year is it's a multi year spend out. So really year. 2025, 2026, that's where we're at the peak of spending from the IIJA. Gabrielle, how does this longer term prospects fit in with your uncertainties and your forecasting? Do you actually think about a possibility, bite my tongue, of a two-year recession possibly coming, 23, 24? I realize that's not in the, certainly not Mark's expectations at this point, but do you think about that? What we've identified is that over time, the state of California's revenue structure lends to quite a bit of, um, it has a propensity for for volatility. And so the more severe the recession, the wider the downturn could be. We've In the last recession, we saw $100 billion in revenue downturn. And so in a more severe recession, you know, you could see something like that. And so our range of what is plausible is quite wide. So we, we encourage our our policymakers to think about what their risk tolerance is. And, you know, the more cautious they want to be, if they want to look at adopting a budget with revenues that are dipping lower on that spectrum, then, you know, the offset would be to increase the amount they put in reserves. So one other thing I just thought I'd mention on the wage discussion that uh, y'all were having is that I think California is not alone in this, but part of our surplus was allocated to providing tax rebates and retention payments to state workers, sort of one-time payments that would uh, were intended to provide some 
you know, assistance with the cost of living pressures people were facing, and then also the tax rebates just to the residents overall, not just state workers. You know, and so it's a one-time use of state resources, but I think that was the, you know, a big part of the rationale among our um, policymakers was the recognition that people were faced with high fuel prices and general inflationary pressures overall. So that was one of the responses. And I, I believe other states did, some other states did something similar. Well, Gabe, Gabe for, and, and Huey, both for the, the state and the county workforces where you are, what are you assuming or, or budgeting for in terms of in terms of public worker wage agreements, including pensions and OPEB and retiree health care, in other words, and, and everything else? It's going to be that, that time of the year. So, so both of you, you know, tell us what you're going in, what you're going in bargaining for, what the state and the county plans to bargain for. When you talk about, you know, for me as a county, you know, looking at the state of Michigan, city of Detroit, a lot of the other counties that are my peers, it's going to be a while before, because we had a heavy ARPA slurf allotment that was given to us, city of Detroit saying, and it's going to be a while. Like, I can't imagine the scenario where I have to do, you know, first of all, I got a heavy, I already have a heavy amount of vacancies in the first place. Now, on top of that, I've got this restricted money, but I still have quite a bit of money to spend. I saw a study probably about two or three weeks ago that talked about roughly about 20% collectively of opera slurf money. Hopefully, everybody knows what I mean when I say slurf, state and local <laughs> relief fund. State and local fiscal recovery fund. Right. Thank you. And so that money is still mostly unspent. Right. So if you talk, even as my property tax revenues, even if they stagnate in a recessionary situation, I've still got to spend this other money. I don't have enough people. You know, you know, generally speaking, I don't have enough people. It's just not going to be a situation where I'm going to have mass layoffs anytime soon. And so, you know, given that and looking at, you know, how I go to the collect, you know, again, we budgeted pre-reset, pre-inflation. We budgeted for um Across the board, across the board, wage increases, we're looking, you know, depending on the, the union and the specific job function, anywhere from 6% up to 12, 13% for super difficult, you know, job titles to, to recruit. And we're back where we started from because inflation is at 9%. So we're going back to the drawing board. We're getting more creative, really looking at our benefits. We, you know, we're basically working with HGHP benefit packages. Um, mostly, you know, high deductible health plan um, benefit packages. We're having to revisit that. We're having to revisit that. We have to do something. And, you know, you talk about in the macro sense, a recession and high, lab- high labor uh, demand. We're really feeling it. I won't feel, I mean, I might personally feel a recession, but I won't feel as CFO this county a recession in terms of the need to turn away workers in some time. That was a play out in, in California, Gabe. Well, what we've seen uh, several MOUs this past uh, summer and into you know uh, late August and early September were uh, agreed to between the administration and um, the bargaining units. The uh, colas in those across the board were 2.5 percent, which is a little bit lower than you might expect given what we're talking about. And I think um, there are some idiosyncratic reasons for for that. I think the cost pressures are probably somewhat lagged because in CalPERS and CalSTRS last year, the most recent year of returns for their uh, investments, they were, you know, 20%, but 
this most recent year, of course, they fell quite a bit below the assumed rate of return. And so we are expecting there to be higher contribution requirements in the coming years related to that. But I, again, I think like part of the response by the legislature and the governor here was to address the, the issue through these one-time worker retention payments to try to provide both some relief and uh, incentive for people to stay on the workforce. When I looked at the BLS data, I mean, California has around 300,000 state workers. If I index it back to January of uh, 2020, you know, we are back to, or, you know, 101.5% to what we were in January of 2020. So I'm not seeing at this point, and, and in the course of looking at our MOU agreements, we weren't seeing a major, you know, missing workers at this point. But again, I think that could uh, that could be something that we'll be watching and could could unfold. Now, New York City has, in theory, a workforce of about 320,000, but there are tens of thousands of unfilled positions right now. People don't want to come back to work. People don't want to get vaccinated. People are retiring. So the city with a workforce about the same population of 8 million odd and a, and a workforce about the size of California's is facing this this same crossroad, higher demands for wages and benefits, but a lot of unfilled positions that don't look like they're going to be filled. That's mm-hmm. that's going to probably auger against mass layoffs because as it is, as it is, the, the city is shorthanded for what it does. It's now let me jump off of that with a question that follows on that. So we hear that you, Huey, were increasing perhaps 6% to 12%, closer to 6%, and now we have uh, inflation that's taking almost to double digit 9%. So we're not able to pay, you're not paying the workers, you're not increasing the payment as much as the wages. And I'm hearing the same thing, Gabriel, you were saying that you know 2.5% is the COLA. How do these COLAs, which cost of living of 2.5% is not tied to inflation, how is does that differ from the situation in 1970s? I think you referred to that, Mark. You want to Jump in here because the question of getting in, of having inflation entrenched in wages for a wage price spiral is so critical. Yet we really seem not to be there in terms of the potentially the structural setup mm-hmm. today. Where do you think we are on that, Mark? And then Beth Ann, perhaps you want to weigh in on that too, please. Mark, let's start with you. At least so far, I think we can say that we're not into a kind of a wage price spiral. And that the reason for, for that is, the reason I say that is inflation expectations still remain well anchored, as they say. They're low. Uh, so, I understand there, my, my reading is about 3%, which is you know good considering what actual inflation is, but yet on a precipice, if it goes too much higher, we're in trouble, right? That's right. But I, I, you know, there's different ways of measuring expectations. My favorite comes from the bond market because that's investors putting their money where their mouth is. And my favorite out of the bond market is the so-called one-year, five-year forward. So that's inflation a year from now and the subsequent five years. And that's sitting pretty close to the high end of the Fed's range for the CPI, about 2.5%. And it's been, you know, over the last year, at times a little bit above that, at times a little bit below that. So, Susan, one of the things, I think we are at the precipice of a wage spiral, the numbers, the, the as you pointed out, a lot of the inflation expectation numbers are just at the peak, but you know they're not quite spiraling just yet. Although I tell you, if you ask somebody on the street, 
they're not going to agree because it certainly feels like one. I would note um, some of the differences. You mentioned the differences between the 1970s and where we are now. Although listening to some of the state folks like Huey and Gabe, it doesn't play necessarily with um, state and local uh, governments. But the differences be now between where we, where we were in the 70s to now was one, a lot of wage contracts were indexed to inflation. That's one big difference. Okay. Another big difference a lot more unionization in the 1970s and where we are now. So we have a much more flexible market. That certainly goes in favor of what the Fed's doing and certainly for this economy as well. It does mean that wage earners are taking the hit. Bill, let me turn to you. I think we're getting close to the end of the hour and there's a number of announcements which we need to make. And perhaps, do we have time for a roundup from our panelists or? Well, let me make just a, a quick comment. I appreciate what Mark and Beth and everybody are saying. When I was a young reporter and editor covering markets in the 1970s and early 1980s, you had a Fed, I think somebody used the word confused. You, you had a Fed that was confused and was more inclined to in accommodate the oil price shocks and the, the inflationary, all the inflation that stemmed from the Vietnam War, where we wanted to have guns and, and butter. And the difference this time is so far, the Fed might have been a little bit late, but is not going to be late for, you know, is not going to be late for long. They're going to stick around and they're making they're making very clear that they're not going to accommodate what's happened in the oil market, uh, the grain market or the, the job market. Yeah, not confused, Bill, not confused, intrepid. Do we have time for quick comments on going forward? Allison, uh, 30 seconds. Yeah, I'll just say for infrastructure, we definitely are looking at what's happening on the state and local revenue with revenues in the broader economic situation, because what happens in our market tends to lag those developments. So that's something I appreciate what Huey and Gabe were saying, and, and we'll be that's what we'll be keeping an eye on we'll things watch with you. right Thank now. You. Thank you, Gabe. And then Huey. Yeah, Gabe? no, given the outlook that we have and uh, the state's uh, fiscal sensitivity to that, we think that the legislature should consider, although we have currently the highest reserves in nominal terms ever, they are not the highest ever on a percentage of budget basis. So we think they should consider building up more budget resilience uh, in, in the event of a downturn. Huey? On a micro level, what we're seeing here, you know, if, if we, we see the inflation, we see the difficulties in hiring workers, even as we approach a recession. So at some point, we're more focused on trying to make sure we can provide services. Thank you all. Bill, back to you. Well, thank, thank you, Susan. I don't know if Mark is still with us, but thank you to you. And this brings us to the end of another special briefing. Again, thank you to our amazing panelists. Thanks to Susan Walker and the Volcker Alliance, Penn IUR Advisory Board members, and the Century Foundation. Thank you as well to our wonderful audience and to the folks behind the mic. And also, of course, please watch for the special briefing podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and your favorite platforms. So until next time, I'm Bill Glasgow. Thanks again to, to Susan Walker. And thank you once again for joining us. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.